Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, January 11th, 2023. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Media commentary columnist and American Enterprise Institute fellow Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. An associate editor and author of The Rise of the New Puritans, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Uh, Federal Reserve Chairman uh, Jay Powell uh, was in Sweden yesterday at some kind of a conference, and uh, he said something very interesting I want to read to you guys in full. Uh, Quote, It is essential that we stick to our statutory goals and authorities and that we resist the temptation to broaden our scope to address other important social issues of the day. Without explicit congressional legislation, it would be inappropriate for us, by which he means the Fed, to use our monetary policy or supervisory tools to promote a greener economy or to achieve other climate-based goals. We are not and will not be a climate policymaker. Um, I wanted to bring this up to you guys without telling you beforehand, because I just want to hear your response to the fact that this is something that the Federal Reserve Chairman Jay Powell said yesterday. Wow, it's great. Couldn't be couldn't be happier with him stating what what uh, good economic policy should look like, which is not social justice warring, but economic policymaking. Yeah, I mean, and, well, I'm sorry, continue. Christine. No, I was gonna say, and the appeal to Congress in particular is very, very useful. Well, that's what's a little worrying is that, you know, in the absence of legislation, because legislation has been proposed along these lines, um, especially when it in the um, convulsion that followed the uh, George Floyd killing in the summer of 2020, there was a legislative effort to draft the Fed into making monetary policy that was designed to achieve equitable racial outcomes. Now, I don't know what that means. They don't know what that means, but it would essentially draft the Fed into not creating a stable uh, monetary environment and pursuing monetary policy that you know, restores price stability, but to uh, redistribute incomes somehow. I'm not even sure how, but there is an an effort underway on the part of people who are obsessive about social engineering to uh, draft the Fed into the work of of reshaping the social contract. But fair is fair. If Congress wrote legislation that directed the Fed to include climate change or racial distribute, you know, redistribution uh, into its goals, um, that would be something the Fed would therefore have to take upon itself like that. That's what he's saying. They don't make policy outside their writ. They should not be making policy outside their writ. And it's interesting that he said this because Christine said, wow. I said, wow, when I read it. And then I thought, this should be a gimme for a lot of people. Like, they should be able to say, look, climate change is bad and I don't like it. And racial injustice is bad and I don't like it. That's not my job. That is not, I have a job that, particularly in government, that has been delineated by uh, legislation, by regulation, by things like that. And I don't need, I, it, it's hard enough for me to do the job that I have to do now. Do not, I, I'm not expanding my writ based on the fashions of the present moment. But of course, that's not what anybody ever says. What they immediately say is, oh, okay, sure. Uh, we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll make sure that we have, you know, DEI as a factor in the way we think about things or something like that. Um, University presidents could say, "Our purpose running university is to educate the uh, educate America's youth. That's that's what we do. That means we educate them so when they leave here, they have the uh, intellectual, philosophical, logistical, and practical tools to be functioning and citizens and effective members of the community. And all this other stuff is great. You go do it somewhere else. Go do it." you know, go set something up for yourself. Make sure that everybody has to go through it. That's fine. We have a mission that has been the mission of educated people for two millennia. 
But and, if there was a uh, legislative effort to expand the definition of monetary policy to include social goals, that would, uh, I mean, it's in Congress's, it's Congress's prerogative, but it would alter the the contract here. The Fed is supposed to be an independent institution designed specifically to avoid, as you say, political fashions <clears throat> to pursue sound monetary policy. And if Congress were to uh, violate that agreement, it would be an abrogation of the terms that we settled on when, we, when the Fed was established in the early part of the 20th century. It would, yeah, it would but there be, are they no... can do it, but they shouldn't. Right. But I, I agree with you. But I'm just saying that, you know, that's how we affect change in government in the United States is through legislation or or constitutional amendment. That's how change is supposed to be affected in term in, in the way that some a body like the Fed does its business. If it is directed to do so by the representatives of the people acting at the House and the Senate and the presidential levels and what they do is not deemed unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. That is how change is supposed to happen. So were that to be the case, maybe it would be a terrible thing and would end our economy as we know it, but at least it would have the imprimatur of our democratic Republican system. Which you know, is I, sort of, yeah. I, I think what, you know, what's interesting about what he said um, is that it's, it's safe enough to say it now. Um, I think the the there's a bit of here of the the bloom is off the rose on activism a bit generally um, among certain people, and we'll see we'll see what kind of clapback uh, uh, he he may or may not uh, get from this. But you know it's 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 not 2020 anymore. Well, and there've been there's been some curdling of the uh, both the DEI and the kind of uh, ethical investing, anti-fossil fuel investing stuff, both with um, Samuel Bankman-Fried and and the you know the crypto explosion. Uh, what happened with Black Lives Matter as an organization and the absolute you know corruption of what they did with a lot of the money that went their way and investigations into into what the, how they spent that money. So I think people are now assessing the last couple of years and going, well, okay, so maybe. The good intentions might have been there, and I think a lot of people still cling to the intentions. But in in practice, there was a whole lot of grift in, baked into this in, this idea. I think also Powell is facing an unbelievably difficult challenge here, which is that based on everything that we're seeing and things that he said yesterday and other places, um, we're so far not out of the woods in terms of his efforts to rein in long-term inflation and uh and do what he can to avoid a really 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 harsh recession that he's already signaling that we may have you know we may have the interest rates go up to five five and a half six percent something like that and um he has to look like a, a tough guy he can't be looking like oh we like puppies and we don't you know climate change is so serious and Really, you know, I, you know, I want to win the Gene Herschel humanitarian award like that's not he needs to look like he is spending 24 hours a day surfing this economic wave um, because uh, a lot of this has been interrupted by changes in how the inflationary spiral is affecting us. Right. So gas prices. I mean, they haven't collapsed, but they're, you know, they've gone down, I think, on average, like 40 percent as as gas prices do. But some other staple items, including sort of the manufacture of foodstuffs and all of that, has has continued to spiral upward. Uh, used cars are now back to being much cheaper than they were, but they're still way more expensive than they were before the pandemic and all of that. So you have this weird phenomenon in which. Uh, because the election is over, because Republicans are licking their wounds and didn't get the bump from inflation that they thought they were going to and, and all of that, somehow we like the conversation has quieted down on this front, but it hasn't quieted down for him. You know, we had slowdowns in the labor force participation numbers and the number of hours work, things like that over the last two job cycles, which otherwise the top line number looks pretty good. Dig into it. There are some problems He's got to look, the Fed has to look like it is deadly serious about its number one aim, which is uh, preventing a meltdown of the economic system of the West. So I think in that sense, this serves his interests. Like, even though he, you know, isn't going to get the smiley face headlines and all that, he is saying, 
I'm focused like a laser beam on this. Don't distract me with your political nonsense. That's not what I have to do here. I just didn't know he had it in him. Like I, we don't know him that well, even though he's been a public official for a long time. Like we don't really understand him or his inner workings. And he doesn't have, you know, Alan Greenspan's or Ben Bernanke's um, press agents uh, who are going around secretly telling people how wonderful they are and how they're really, you know, they're, they're like uh, the, the puppeteers keeping everything, keeping everything going, which looked great until everything went haywire. And then they, their reputations were shattered. So I, I don't know, like it, this is an interesting moment. I thought it was worth pointing out. Speaking of climate change, Noah, uh, we, climate change is such a huge crisis oh. that um, you are going to have to, you may have to cook on electric burners for the rest of your life. Uh, over my dead body. Well, apparently your dead body may be may be implicated because according to the people who want you to no longer have a gas stove, if you have a gas stove, we'll all be dead. <laughs> yeah. Well, apparently, which is news to just about everybody who's existed over the course of, I don't know, since the mid uh, 19th century when we discovered that we could burn hydrocarbons and make energy from them. Um so, yes, this made a big splash, which is the U United States Consumer Product Safety Commission uh, this week, I suppose, uh, discovered miraculously that um, all these states, including California and New York, which have been trying to phase out gas ranges, gas natural gas powered ranges uh, for environmental reasons, shockingly and coincidentally, uh, these horrible things that are bad for the environment are also horrible and bad for your health. They discovered based on recent studies um, that they produce these uh, gas ranges produce harmful levels of nitrogen dioxide, carbon monoxide, particulates and benzene. Uh, and they can just you know linger in the atmosphere and they cause a measurable increase in childhood asthma cases to the tune of 12, almost 13 uh, percent. And so they, they got to go. At least that's what they're investigating. Maybe, maybe not. But, you know, we're we're open to public comment. There will be public comment on the notion that these things should be discontinued. Um, and it's madness. It's just crazy. It certainly is an effort to, on the part, the, the coincidence of the fact that it's bad for your health, while it's also bad for the environment, is um, too hard to be believed, even if the science is sort of bunkish, and it strikes me as as pretty bunk. Yeah, it's, but just wait. I mean, I mean, it's irrelevant, but continue, wait, please. I mean, the part, I, I know the part that gets you I mean, all of it gets you, but but you actually cook and you care about that. Right. Um, I don't cook, but what gets me is here comes the campaign. We are now mm -hmm. going to hear endlessly about the health hazards, the environmental hazards. It is going to be this, you know, constant articles, debates, everything pushing, you know, how how um, uh, gas-powered stoves are, are ruining the world. And we've seen well, it out of that. I'm yeah. sorry. No, I was going to say, I cook too. I have a gas range. I love it. I grew up having to cook, learning to cook on an electric range. It is an order of magnitude more difficult to control the temperature. It's just not as much fun. Um, you know, I feel like we should, our side, the pro gas range side should like immediately enlist Gordon Ramsay or someone and be like, start talking about how this can't be done. But I want to point out the science because that's the big question. If you start going down the rabbit hole, the studies that are being cited, it becomes quickly clear that these are extremely small, some of them funded and, and done by um, sort of environmental activist groups. It's 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 most likely bad science. And the experts that are being quoted on the side of the banned gas ranges are people who actually have no background in science. They are climate activists. They are environmental activists. They say things like this is like having exhaust in your home. They the, the woman who was quoted by The Washington Post has a bachelor's degree in like globalization studies. Like she is not a scientist. She should not be commenting on the scientific impact of something like this. If, if they want to be taken seriously, and I, to Abe's point, I don't think they do want to be taken seriously. They want to make a political point. And and they'll use anything they can find to do that. So a brief rant on this, because I'm developing a portfolio of suburban male grievances, and this has become my latest. In you need a label like in that's not incel, but that captures that sort of excellent. <laughs> this is a class argument. It's a class based argument 
waged by people who's and by the way, there's this weird, weird thing that happens when this stuff comes out of the blue. And then people who believe that they have to get on the board with whatever the line is, adopt this tone of just exhaustion. They're just weary that they have to educate you about this thing that they just came up with seven minutes ago, as though they've been doing this for years. They haven't. This just came out of the blue. The problem that a lot of people have with this stuff isn't just environmentalism, what have you, whatever. The problem is that it works. It works better than their alternatives. And part of the problem that they have with things that work is that they are efficient, is that they uh, are, are time savers, and it extends well beyond stoves. Now, for you know, if you do anything on the stove that isn't spoil or sear, yes, gas is superior. If you braise, if you fry, if you simmer, if you saute, any, if you flambe, if you toast, anything that involves temperature ranges and regulating temperature ranges, that's valuable. It's not valuable if you're one reservation away from the meal that you want to have. It's not something that's available to people in the hinterlands, for example, which is part of the reason why this is of a piece, which I think, with the war on gas-powered lawn equipment. I wrote a piece for the Washington Examiner a little bit ago examining the arguments against gas-powered lawn equipment, which arose after the Biden administration decided to introduce 15% ethanol to gas, which kills gas-powered lawn equipment. It's the sort of thing you wouldn't know unless you use gas-powered lawn equipment. And then you dig into it and you find out that there's this crusade against these things because they're bad for the environment, because they're bad for your health, because they endanger the uh, the migrant workers who have to use these things, spitting disease up into the air. You can see, you can smell the classism from here. And all they want to do is make you spend a lot more money and a lot more man hours using electric equipment on your yard uh, because they don't. They don't do any of this stuff. They don't have to. You never have to think about it. This is just a, something that you have to deal with. You have to deal with light, incandescent light bulbs now, maybe that don't have the exact same warmth that you like, or no, non-incandescent light, light bulbs. Maybe they don't have the same warmth as an L, in, in an LED form. They do not. But too I bad for them. you. <laughs> too bad for you. Maybe short cycle laundry, uh, laundry uh, washing machines, dishwashers, laundry uh, equipment. Maybe that's the sort of thing that saves you a couple of hours. But they don't care. Because they only do three or four dishes a week. Um, someone else is doing their laundry for them in many cases. Yeah. Well, right. They exactly. banned gas Straws, shopping bags. The list yeah. goes on and on and on. There is a war on convenience in this country among people who don't really need the convenience because they just don't take advantage of it. They, they have smaller the shopping hassle. loads. Yes. They outsource everything. They don't, exp they don't have land to take care of. They don't cook. They don't have these experiences, and they don't think you should either. Can we can we just talk about uh, the, the just dwell on the science for one more second? Because who doesn't know by now that there is a study for everything? There is a study for every position. Who is? I mean, I I, I say who, but obviously they're out there. How can you be persuaded by these insta studies that 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 pop up? in the wake of every new uh, campaign and every proposed policy change, um, especially after COVID, you know, like, yeah. like when we when we saw the zigzagging constantly on everything from <clears throat> uh, respirators to to washing your your groceries to to whatever else. There's a great well, quote. There's a the really important quote that was said by the uh, commissioner, the uh, the Consumer Product Safety Commissioner, Richard Trumka. He told Bloomberg News, and I, you got to think about what this might mean if you extrapolate. He says, products that can't be made safe can be banned. Now, that seems like, oh, that, yeah, of course, because that's what the Consumer Product Safety Commission does is safety. But if you think about, particularly as, as Abe says, in the context of the, the post-COVID uh, era, what? how do you define safe, right? Really? Does safe mean no one will ever get this or that? Does it mean total lockdown? So I think our whole conception of what is safe and what is risk, what is actually a, a totally legitimate risk has been upended. And there are bureaucrats who are very keen to pursue that. But Forks. It, well, it, Think about the danger of forks. You could die from a fork. No, but you look, can, yeah, your kid could spork. jam a fork in his eye. <laughs> no, no, you know, you know, uh, people have said, we've said it on the pod, people say that, you know, one of the differences between the right and the left when it comes to uh, economics or sort of macroeconomics is that the right believes that 0% of the, you know, in an ideal world, 0% of the money that people make should go to government, but we're, we don't live in an ideal world and some part of the money they make is going to have to be expropriated by government to do 
common tasks that we all share in. And then there is the leftward position, which is that 100% of the things that are made should belong to the collective and that uh, what you get for your own sake is kind of given to you generously by the by the collective deferring to some sense of your individual right to the fruits of your own labor. So 0%, 100%. The Trumpka position is that which cannot be safe can be banned. A hundred percent of the things on earth are not safe. Nothing is safe. Uh, maybe you used to be able to say that air was safe or water was safe, but now they're air and water are polluted. So they're not even, nothing is safe. There is some level of concentration of the use of anything that exists on the planet earth. That is a danger. Do you have books? They can catch on fire. Do you have, you know, do you have orange? You know, do you have peanut butter? It can kill somebody who has an aflatoxin allergy. Do you, you know, anything on earth is not safe. And so if you say that which is not safe can can be banned, you are then saying we start from the position that everything that exists we can ban. And therefore anything that is not banned is an exception. We're making a generous exception to let you have it. And that yeah. is a real philosophical fundamental difference between the collectivist left and the individualist right. But it's deranged in a, in, a, in a definitional sense. It's derangement. Like I would say there's maybe this is some sort of a weird romantic Rousseauian philosophical bent towards a state of nature as being ideal, idyllic, and therefore um, natural and maybe even safer. But there's nothing safer there's nothing safe about the state of nature. The state of nature is probably the most dangerous, nasty, brutish, and short condition right? that you could possibly get. Yeah. All of civilization is an effort to yeah. to but tame I don't the think forces of so, nature. I don't think it's romantic at all. What I'm saying is that it is the general position of an unthinking leftist person that if there is a thing there, they get to control the thing, and that if they don't control the thing, they're only they're they're only doing that under sufferance. Because everything should be controlled. Everything needs to be regulated. Everything needs to come under a magnifying glass, scrutinized by experts and officials. And to answer, Abe, your question, what study is it that you believe? You believe any study that confirms your priors. But they don't even have why it, like a discussion session. Why do people not like session? leaf blowers? No. Why do people not like leaf blowers? You know why? They're loud because it's They're loud. They're noisy. Yeah, that's, that's it. Yeah, that's some it. of them say that. People... Some of them say that they they shatter the bucolic, you know, yes. placidity. They banned them summer. in D.C. You yeah. cannot use a gas powered leaf blower yeah. in D.C. any longer. Yeah, it's it is, look, They're awful. There's nothing worse than you're lying in bed on a you know Saturday morning and then your neighbor is like using the leaf blower. It's horrible. Or like you know. You're if you live in an apartment building, they're blowing the leaves. It's horrible. It's a horrible noise. Dogs, you know, hide under the couch and, you know, your ears. It's terrible. And so therefore it should be banned. It's very simple. Something that makes that noise shouldn't exist. But now, they don't even have that. Like, okay, but they, I feel like that about a lot of contemporary pop music. That doesn't mean it should be banned. No, I mean, <laughs> but I mean, that's because you don't believe in banning things, but they do. But there's I a mean, phenomenon that's happening now that is, I think, in, unique insofar as it's kind of new in that the, nobody even has to have like a meeting to get on board with the talking points here. Somebody comes up with these initiatives in a back room and then it, it's introduced to the public and everybody who believes they should be on board with it, gets on board with it, adopts talking points that didn't exist five minutes ago and then become a, a first principle out of the blue. It didn't they there used to be some analytical framework that had to be established in order for everybody to get on board with these things. And now they're just freelancing, inventing their own talking points in support of what they believe to be the party line, the new position that everybody, every right thinking individual should adopt. And it happens overnight. Well, okay. if it if yeah. it if it fits into the accepted framework that's out there. So if it if it's about, uh, you know, uh, vigilant safety at all times, which is now a, a, a dominant idea, or if it's about saving the planet, then yeah, that, then then it goes unquestioned. We could do this. Mailboxes are racist. Right. Go. Figure it out. And I bet oh, you they well, would. There's a, there's a mailbox desert. 
There's a mailbox <laughs> desert in there you go. in in poor neighborhoods. There People you go. have to walk four blocks to the mailbox, and maybe mm. in your building they come and collect the mail under your door. I don't know that that's one. Way. But look, brilliant. I want to talk about the Consumer Product Safety Commission. Something else happened in the last couple of days. Uh, Fisher Price makes this infant a thing uh, for babies to sleep in. An infant sleeper, little rocking thing. They have announced basically that it, it should be banned. Uh, because according to them, 100 kids in the last three years have died because they turn over onto their stomachs in the sleeper somehow. And then they then they 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 die. Well, recalled and to be made safe, which is a distinction. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, fine. So let, let them be recalled. I, okay. But let's actually talk about numbers here. There are a 4.7 million live births in the United States per year. So at any given moment, there are like 4.7 million babies. I think this study was over three years. That means that 33 kids a year uh, are, have been, have the, this, this device has been implicated in some fashion in the deaths of 33 kids a year in the United States. Per year, out of 4.7 million live births, that is 0.0001% of all people on earth. Now, yeah, but see, on this, okay, I'm going to push back on this one because there are, um, you know, a lot of these companies, and I know someone who, uh, this is more than 10 years ago now, but who actually fought and got recalled uh, an infant sleeper because her own child suffocated in one. So I come at this with a little bit of emotional uh, background, but that that's something that see it, it is a very small risk but that's something that really do revoking those banning them or, or recalling them and making them safe when it comes to infants i think is is justifiable since a lot of these products are brought to market by companies for parents that don't really even need them it's like oh everybody's got an infant sleeper i'm going to get one too and they get one that's badly designed or badly made or wasn't thoroughly tested and their kid dies or they know of someone whose kid dies that seems to me a place where the market should respond aggressively to fix that error not only cuz you know children lose their lives but because the regulation of that sort of stuff, it's a, it's kind of like infant car seats. I think they went a little overboard with infant car seats. I joke that I could have sent my kids to the moon safely in their infant car seats. But those have saved lives, too. And every year they do new yep. upgrades and new standards. And look, if you're in a car accident and your car seat's in the car, you should get rid of that car seat. Get it. Like They're really, really thorough about that. And that okay, has wait. saved lives. Okay. So, again, I'm not saying that there aren't trade-offs and that maybe this is right. I'm just like throwing out. Raw numbers, 33 deaths a year. Okay, so let's talk about car seats. The existence of car seats has meant that for a lot of people in the United States, they are obliged now to buy cars that are ten to $20,000 more expensive than the cars they might otherwise buy because they literally cannot fit three car seats right. in a row That's true. in a back seat. Okay? Is that a legitimate use of... um of sort of, you know, regulatory, a regulatory framework to make it so that basically people then maybe don't have another kid. Cause I mean, I'm not, this is not a joke. Like they don't have another kid cause they can't afford another car. Then they have to buy a when van. When I went right, from two yeah. to three kids, I had to get a minivan. Yeah. I had no choice. I could afford it. That doesn't mean that that's a legitimate way to regulate. There are, Trade-offs and costs. I'll give you another, a deeper and darker one. <clears throat> 25 years ago, or 30 years ago, maybe a little longer, it was determined that sudden infant death syndrome could be uh, prevented or alleviated uh, by the modality of having babies, newborns, sleep on their backs. And the numbers that I saw when I first had my my, my oldest is 18 were that the SIDS deaths in the United States declined from 6,000 to 3,000 a year when back sleeping became the norm or what was recommended. I I mean, that number is raw, so I'm sure it's true. In other words, like the number of deaths attributed to to SIDS is an emergency room, you know, a, a dawn number or whatever, and so therefore you have to take it. It's a national number and all of that. Okay, so hard to say that this was a, a bad thing if you know three thousand people are alive a year who would have been dead otherwise. 
but you know, back sleeping isn't nothing. And kids, babies find it very, very hard to comfort themselves and sleep for long periods sleeping on their backs. And then I'm just throwing this out. Like then you have young parents. They're told to put their kids on their backs. The kids wake up every hour and a half screaming. They're they're young. They have they have they have short, you know, their temporal lobes are not fully fused, whatever. How much of the disruption in sleep, which was like a totally crazed topic among parents 20 years ago? I mean, the number of books that were published about how to help your kid get a good night's sleep, the amount of time that people spent at pediatricians reading, studying, doing tests, crying it out, this and that and the other thing was a national obsession for a long time. I think people started putting their kids back sleeping on their stomachs. Because I've noticed in the last 10 years that you hear a lot less talk about this. And the reason those sleepers, those Fisher-Price sleepers, are po- are popular is that they effectively allow you not to have your kid sleeping on their back in a crib on a hard plastic mattress. You're also supposed to have a hard plastic mattress because then they their faces won't burrow into the mattress or they you're not supposed to have a sheet because the sheet will choke them. It's like all this stuff. And all of that has ancillary, potential ancillary consequences, and maybe those ancillary consequences are worth the struggle. But um, by the time my third kid came along, I was taking two towels and putting them on either side of my of my son and letting him sleep on his side from a very because not only would I not get sleep or my wife not get sleep, but our two other children wouldn't get sleep because he would cry all the, it's, it's not, it's a weird thing. This is the regulatory state in its purest form. Like it looks like what they did is totally uncontroversial, but it may have very weird ancillary consequences, more expensive cars, uh, people who might be inclined to be more abusive to their children at young ages because they are, they are deranged from lack of sleep uh and and you know can't can't get a colicky kid to stop crying or you know to wake up in the middle of the night all of that these are this is part of the problem with the regulatory state uh is that you know and let's get to one other thing i'm sorry to monologue here but um Here's another thing about parents, because parents is this is the easiest place for people to regulate. You're like, kids are dying, you know, we're ruining kids. Here's how you do it. So the American Academy of Pediatrics, when my kid was born, said no screens, no screens for two years, no baby, no child should sit in front of a screen, a TV, anything for two years. You're going to ruin their attention span. They're not going to have any concentration. They're not going to be able to read. They're all going to get ADHD, and then they're all going to, you know, be on Adderall, and then they're all going to, you know, commit murders or something like that. Don't no screens. Screens are bad. Anybody who needed five minutes to relax put a kid in front of a TV, felt horribly guilty because they were doing something terrible to their kids, right? Fast forward to safetyism 2020, and suddenly every child in America is supposed to sit for eight hours a day on a screen. From the age of three, wasn't just, you know, that you were in high school. From the age of three, no, no, this is perfectly fine. Did the educational establishment say we need to get kids back in school right away because we've just been spent a generation saying that screens are bad for people's cognitive development and we have kids who are sitting on screens at the age of five trying to learn? We have to stop doing that and get them back into a school? Is that what the educational establishment said? Is that what the American Academy of Pediatrics said? No. Suddenly, this was all fine because we were saving everybody from dying when, of course, as we know, no child, you know, almost no children in the United States died from COVID in the first two years of COVID. Okay, that's the end of my, that's the end of my rant. And with the end of that rant, I will now talk to you about Bambi, our advertiser today. Uh, HR is hard. Uh, it's a very difficult thing to deal with. You know, what do you do when remote workers move locations? How are you going to bring your workforce back in full force into office settings? What do you do about attendance issues? And people say, no, no, I didn't really need to. I thought I could stay home today. How do you attract and keep top talent for small business? Bambi is 
your salvation here because it gets you access to your own dedicated HR manager starting at just $99 per month, not an $80,000 annual salary, $99 per month available by phone, email, and real-time chat. So onboarding and terminations run smoothly, team members reach peak performance, and your business stays compliant with changing HR regulations. And with Bambi's HR Autopilot, you'll automate important HR practices like setting policies, training, and feedback. Schedule your free conversation today to see how much Bambi can take off your plate. Go to Bambi.com right now and type in Commentary Magazine under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. Spelled B-A-M-B-E dot com. Bambi.com. Type in Commentary Magazine. Uh, okay. What else? What I got else? something. Go. You as an average American should Me? not have to know anybody. Okay. You listener, dear listener should not have to know the name of the Secretary of Transportation. And yet, not just because he's sort of a celebrity and kind of an interesting guy and, and a political talent, but everybody knows Pete Buttigieg's name because I don't know if there's a switch he hasn't fallen asleep at yet. We have planes that can't take off. We have constant labor problems in the train industry. We have highway issues that arise from the trillion dollars that we threw at infrastructure in this country that somehow haven't manifested in infrastructure in a year. Um, I don't know if this guy's building a brand that will elevate him to future office based on his record as transportation secretary. It has been abysmal. Maybe it's not all of his fault. Maybe none of it's his fault. And yet, then we have to wonder what kind of a monkey paw, what gypsy he crossed, who cursed him, because he has the amount of horrors that have befallen his tenure sort of defy just uh, entropy. It's very weird. Interesting case. Okay, Pete Buttigieg had to deny or uh, turn down the prospect of running for senator in Michigan to replace the retiring Debbie Stabenow last week. Why him? But from Michigan, where, 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 where is the Michigan in him? He was the mayor of South Bend, Indiana. I know Hillary Clinton went and she ran in New York. Um, you forget the elite just sees them all as one mass because they don't right. really spend any time I mean, there. So yeah, like, I mean, just, venue why did shopping is in right. Scott Brown, exactly. senator from New Hampshire. Like this, <laughs> that happens. Wait, but I also want to add, you why forgot did the great the... mentioner mention him? How is he the first person in America to be the person who should run run for office All purpose in Pete. Michigan? You forgot, oh, the, you forgot I'm sorry. The I have jets. to stay here and take paternity leave every three months and not do my job. Thank Can you very I, much. I have to harp on my two favorite Pete Buttigieg. My favorite Pete Buttigieg thing is when one of the tabloids caught him pretty soon after he became Secretary of Transportation, getting SUV escorted to within a few like few blocks of the Capitol, and then hopping out of the SUV, having the security pull a bicycle outside of the back of the SUV and cycle on in towards his office or wherever. I mean, this is this guy is very good at these sorts of optics, but he's not been good at actually doing his job. He's been getting criticism. He's used private and military aircraft for personal transportation and for, you know, claims it's normal. But Tom Price, a former transportation secretary, had to resign over much less. So it's it he he somehow gets away with it all. But uh, I mean, I, I continue to argue that his worst sin is having been a McKinsey consultant. So but I I, <clears throat> I think he gets away with it because precisely because of the first part of Noah's point. I don't think the average American has any clue what the transportation secre secretary does. Neither um, do I. Shouldn't. Right. Shouldn't have to. Do I and I am 40 years a student of the federal government. I have no clue what the transportation. Aren't they is. literally supposed to make sure that trains are running on time? Like, isn't that kind of the job description and that planes can take off and land? I mean, they have oversight. Their department has oversight over. Sure. What yeah. Yeah, like, an like that's a political the... task. That's the FAA. I know it comes under the regulatory, it comes under the, right. I assume it comes under transportation. Sometimes that's not necessarily true. You know, for a long time before the Homeland Security Act, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms, a federal law enforcement agency whose agents carried guns and stuff like that was part of the Commerce Department. So, you know, it wasn't part of the Justice Department. So you never know. There's weird 
There's weird things going on in government. But, you know, uh, Robert Reich, now known for being sort of like the most egregious, uh, clownish redistributionist putts on Twitter, um, 30 years ago was uh, the Secretary of Labor under his uh, friend uh, Bill Clinton. And um, he wrote, last honest thing he ever wrote, was a book called Locked in the Cabinet, which was uh, his memoir of his time as Secretary of Labor. And basically, this was a very cheerfully nihilistic book about how if you're a cabinet secretary, what you do is nothing. You do absolutely nothing. You get in there in the morning, your scheduler hands you your schedule. You're giving a speech to the Chamber of Commerce of Pasquoxie. You're going to have lunch with the uh, labor secretary of Zimbabwe. Then you have to go to a fundraising dinner for your friend over here. You never make policy. You never have policy discussions. Every month you have a cabinet meeting in which you pretend to know what your department is doing, and then you do that for a couple of years, and then you quit. And that is the story of Locked in the Cabinet. I'm sure it's not really true. It's certainly not true of departments that matter, which labor doesn't. I mean, it does because you can do a lot of foolishness and probably gum up the works and things. But, you know, departments that matter are <clears throat> state, treasury, defense like that's where people's hhs people's lives are on the line people's you know the how the the country's position in the world our you know our our military readiness and all of that and and indeed the you know disposition of monies for health um but in these other departments <clears throat> they Christine, go on i would they... like you to become secretary of transportation thank you I, <laughs> I, that would be great yeah Abe, well but but they do Abe, this, look... you get you get veterans affairs i hope you enjoy it <laughs> noah well, can at... have leaf blowing i don't look know i don't know what department that would environment go he'd have to do the epa <laughs> okay, <laughs> no, but right. they but but like look our, you said you mentioned labor the labor secretary right now is a guy named marty walsh does anyone know what marty walsh is doing this week i think he's somewhere overseas at some junket like they go they travel a lot and they go around they're kind of weirdly morphing into an ambassador type role where they don't actually they don't set policy right. a lot of them are incompetent certainly thinking about some of our border policies of even overseeing existing policies and they're supposed to advise the president right they're supposed to go and advise the president about policy about what the executive should be doing but they that role even has receded in in you know recent decades so it's it's very much a resume line kind of job. Now you can also bring in your friends and staff those political position with your friends who then get a line on their resume too. It's very strange. Marty Walsh was mayor of Boston, right? Which is actually a position with a lot of authority. Boston's mayor does a lot of stuff, a lot of infrastructure stuff and weird all this. He quit as mayor of Boston, a position of real authority and power, uh, you know, presenting yourself to an electorate to become secretary of labor what and either he's an idiot or he just wanted a cushy you know landing place because he was sick of being mayor like being mayor that's a real job being labor secretary is not a real job you are muted christine sorry he gets to go to davos now though literally he's gonna right. go to davos that's that could have gone to davos as mayor of boston maybe sure he could <laughs> absolutely could have just had to get an invitation but i mean it's it's interesting to me that people do this i know um, uh, after I left, I briefly worked for the Office of National Drug Control Policy, otherwise known as the Drug Czar's Office, for two months when it was being set up in 1989, foolishly, and then I went back into journalism. Uh, after Bill Bennett quit the job, the job went to a guy named Mel Martinez, who had been governor of Florida. And uh, Mel Martinez was in the job for three months, and he turned to my friend John Walters, who now runs the, Her uh, the Hudson Institute, and said... I hate this. Like I hate, like, you know, when I was, I could do things like I, 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 I had, if somebody needed a pothole fixed, uh, told me they, I could like direct someone to get a pothole fixed. I'm here. 56 agencies have to tell me what they're doing or something like that. I have no power. I have no power. I can't do anything to help people. I don't like this job. This is a terrible job. And I always thought of this. Now that's a weird job. The drug, the drugs yeah, are thinking about was... um, the mayor of Boston. Tom Menino was mayor for what a, a generation. I think the thing runs on autopilot. Boston had the world, the largest infrastructure project in the United States for 15 years. The big dig, the big that was dig, a yeah. huge. 
there's a lot of stuff that goes on in Boston. Surprising amount of stuff. And there's a lot of, there's implications for, you know, high tech and this and that. I'm not saying that Boston doesn't, I, I don't know. If you're an executive with executive authority in the United States, a mayor, a governor, or the president of the United States, you are a person with line authority over certain types of things. When you are a cabinet secretary or you are so, like you got very you have very little that is your bailiwick. You are supposed to be you're supposed to be uh laying out the policies of others or fulfilling the policies of others. There are people who are great at it. There are there have been great cabinet secretaries. George Schultz probably the premier one. George Schultz you could have put George Schultz in any job in the American government. Any job. He was labor, he was I don't know, he had three different cabinet posts you know, in Secretary of State, and he knew how to be the servant of the president that he served and how to marshal the powers of the bureaucracy, where to fight the bureaucracy, where to cooperate with the, all of that. He was a genius at it. Uh, and then there are people who get the job and they sink and you never hear from them again. And that, like, maybe somebody like Marty Walsh, I don't know. Uh, Gina Raimondo, right? There's all this talk about Gina Raimondo. I don't, I don't know, like... Whatever, it's just interesting that Pete Buttigieg is saying it's no, no, no. I'm sorry. I'm what I do here in Washington as Secretary of Transportation is so important that I can't possibly run for Senator of Michigan. Why would Michigan want him? Got nothing to do with Michigan. Michigan's like a proud kind of nationalistic state, you know, state. It has its own political traditions, its own people, its own sports teams. They don't need to import some Schmendrick from South Bend to run for governor. <laughs> You know, what is this great mentioner stuff? Where does he come to this? I, I, I you know, I don't, you know, and, I, you know, I, I just don't, I, it's, it's comic. It's because a lot of people in the press corps see themselves in Pete Buttigieg. That's why they have some weird association affiliation with Buttigieg. And he was very impressive, right? As a kind of come out of nowhere candidate. He was very calm and, and articulate. It's very impressive as a performer. Base. Yeah. He can articulate ideas he doesn't believe in ways that make you you make you think he maybe believes right. them, which is a talent um, yes. as a chameleon, as an as a, a dishonest person, yeah. um, which is very effective as a politician. So he's a good politician, but as a bureaucrat, as a functionary, as someone who literally has to keep the planes in the air, so far not so great. Okay, we need to end on this important note that I only read about yesterday that I shared with you guys. In relation to the Biden classified documents matter. Uh, so the Biden classified documents matter. I said yesterday, other people have said, look, they, they found he had classified documents. The minute that they found that he had classified documents in this office in Washington at his, at the think tank that he helped start with Penn, somebody opened, called the archives, called the FBI, like, they immediately saw something was untoward, went to it. They didn't sit, they didn't file an affidavit saying they'd returned all the classified information that was a lie. They didn't, you know, move things around the basement the way they did at Mar-a-Lago. They didn't do any of the stuff that Trump and the Trump people did that seemed to suggest that they were obstructing or trying to hold on to things that 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 he had no right to hold on to. Except for this one little factoid that is in a CNN story about the classified information uh, that I want to read to you. Uh, here is here is the uh, matter. <clears throat> the source, person who told CNN and probably CBS News, told them about what, what had happened two months after the fact, since it was discovered just before the election and, of course, was kept from the American people until after the election votes could be cast. Uh, Source told CNN that a personal lawyer for Biden was closing out the downtown D.C. office that Biden used as part of his work with the University of Pennsylvania. The lawyer saw a manila folder that was labeled personal, quote unquote, open the envelope and noticed there were classified documents inside. The lawyer closed the envelope and called the archives. Personal? The manila envelope said personal? Personal to whom? Personal? That means somebody was hiding documents in an envelope marked personal. 
These are not, these, this is the opposite of personal, right? <laughs> classified documents are the, are the one, are the one things in life that are not personal. You do not own classified documents, no matter who you are anywhere in the world in the United States. Who put them in an envelope marked personal and then sealed it and then had it in a, in a, in a locked something. A, was it an office or a cabinet? I can't remember. Whatever it is. That, that is that's the weird you... detail. This is the weird, this is the detail that is making me go, what? Somebody said, we need to have these, put them in an envelope, write personal on it. Huh? That's how you keep the foreign spies away. <laughs> you just write personal. Right. Not for your eyes. Yeah, no. And also, um, it's come it's come out that 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 there were uh intelligence assessments uh uh in these in these papers right. uh, yeah, having yeah, well, to do with 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 foreign intelligence ukraine ukraine the the british iran. government iran i mean yeah so this is really sensitive information i mean the worst part about this is that we have to view this within the prism of trump all this should be viewed in totally in the absence of trump or whatever the political effect is on trump and the mar-a-lago raid and all that nonsense the congress should conduct an investigation into this and determine the extent to which the, these documents perhaps compromised something. Oh, maybe don't worry. Maybe, maybe nobody opened it because it was labeled personal. Probably nothing, but who knows? And it's Congress's purview to investigate this. We don't oh, know. Don't the worry, Con to Congress. The House is going to investigate. They should. They should, and they have ever. It's totally legitimate for them to do so. I wish right. they would do so in the absence of the political calculations that they're making regarding Donald Trump. Um. <clears throat> interesting. <clears throat> I'm so sorry. Finally, interesting bipartisan event yesterday, the day before yesterday, in the House. Right? Two two committees, new committees were established. One is the Weaponization of Government Committee that we've been reading about that was created entirely on uh, uh, partisan lines. And Jim Jordan is going to chair. And then the other is a committee on the competition between the United States uh, and China, chaired by one of the most impressive people in 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 the in the Congress, uh, Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin, uh, three hundred and sixty six votes supporting the creation of the committee to investigate the relations of uh, the competition between the United States and China. So, interesting moment because you wouldn't have thought that there would ever be a Democratic vote for anything that Republicans wanted. Uh, after last week's hijinks, and there they have a there they have a I, I guess a majority of the of the House Democratic Caucus uh, voted voted for this. It reflects a level of seriousness that makes you wonder what's being said in closed door classified briefings. That is a that is a, a very interesting point, and uh, we'll we'll see we'll see where this goes. But uh, it's very heartening that Mike Gallagher is the chairman of this this committee because he is a very very serious person and uh we will uh leave it there so for abe uh, christine and noah i'm john pot keep the candle burning